Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 10th of September. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week we delve into the constitutional crisis gripping Tunisia and ask what the president's recent declaration means for the country and where it can go next. I would say in general Tunisians are supportive but wary of what is happening. They are cautious, they are careful, they are looking at this and they don't want to go back and just lose completely uh, all the rights and freedoms that they have conquered through the 2011 uprising. And then the New Arab Voices' Nick McAlpin examines the seminal literary work Veiled Sentiments, which is celebrating its 35th year of publication. It all came together. It was the sentiments of vulnerability that were veiled through poetry. And this poetry, like veiling for women, made people respect them. And bingo, there it was, the title, Veiled Sentiments. But first... The Taliban are back in control of Afghanistan and the country and the world are waiting anxiously to see what happens next. Joining us to discuss recent events in Afghanistan is new Arab journalist and friend of the podcast, Najah Satat. Hello, Najah. Hi, Hugo. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Najah, the Taliban are solidifying their hold on the country. What steps have they taken over the past two weeks? The Taliban are working overtime to show themselves to be different than their history, but it's a shaky image. Um, The Taliban announced a new all-male hardline government consisting of several figures who have been sanctioned by the United Nations, including Sirajuddin Haqqani, the interior minister, despite being designated as a terrorist by the US with a reward of some $10 million for information leading to his arrest. The Taliban supreme leader also revealed the group's intentions to appoint a government underpinned by Sharia law and have said they are willing to develop diplomatic ties with any and all countries except for Israel. The group is also eager to push an image of equality to the world uh, in an attempt to alleviate women's fears. And there are proposals to have segregation in schools and universities, which appears to be a departure from uh, past Taliban rule uh, that uh, that didn't allow women to be educated. But it's a logistical nightmare. Women attending private Afghan universities must wear an abaya and niqab covering most of their face, the Taliban have ordered, and classes must be segregated by sex, which is going to be challenging given that there aren't any female educators. And around the country, how have people reacted to the recent events? Protests have erupted across the country, with Afghans fearful of the Taliban's brutal and oppressive regime. Hundreds of women and men gathered in Kabul on Tuesday and Wednesday in a show of defiance. And in Herat, demonstrators marched, unfurled banners, waved the Afghan flag and chanted words like freedom. But violence reigns. 
It was reported by AFP that two bodies were brought to the city's central hospital from the site of the protest with bullet wounds, according to a doctor, and many women report being beaten by Taliban fighters during demonstrations. Uh, Foreign nations have greeted the new Taliban government with a mixture of intense scepticism and hostility, while others have said that the Taliban will be judged on their actions. What have their actions been over the past two weeks? The Taliban need to give their PR team a raise. They're on the road to doing something they've been quietly and desperately seeking for years. Legitimacy. And specifically, legitimacy on the world stage. They've gotten Western news outlets discussing their interim government as though it's representative of the rest of the country, which it isn't. They've got news outlets debating how much they've moved away from the violence of their predecessors, which they haven't. They've got news outlets actually considering that they're treating their female citizens equally because, you know, they're allowing them to go to university. In reality, we've got an interim government without any women. We've got the abolishment of the Ministry of Women's Affairs. We've got women risking their lives protesting in the streets for their rights and being whipped and beaten with electric batons for doing so. We've got journalists beaten up by the Taliban in much the same manner as the 90s for covering these protests. And they've asked all women, except those in the public health sector, to stay away from work until the security situation, due to Taliban fighters, improves. It's a game of image which the Taliban is currently winning. With all the recently reported events, it's quickly becoming clear that Western powers need to do more to interrogate the legitimacy the Taliban is cultivating. Thanks for joining us, Najas. Thank you for having me. July 25th, President of Tunisia, Qais Sayed, addresses the nation and informs them that he has invoked Article 80 of the Constitution. Parliament was suspended, Tunisian Prime Minister Hichem Machichi was dismissed, legal immunity was lifted for lawmakers and all executive power now rests with the President. The move surprised many and quickly elicited responses. The governing Islamist Inahta party quickly branded the president's move as a coup and foreign powers urged that Syed respect democracy and democratic institutions. Across the region, worried eyes looked on as the country that had ignited the Arab Spring in 2011 and had arguably been the success story of the movement appeared to take a step back towards authoritarian rule. Following the president's announcement... Tunisians took to the streets. And on that first night, jubilation filled the air. Fireworks exploded as crowds of Tunisians welcomed the president's actions. In the days that followed, protests and counter-protests erupted in a number of places around the country. Some continued to decry Sayed's power grab, but the majority of Tunisians either supported the president's actions or were at least willing to wait and see what changes he can bring to the country. Were President Sayed's actions a coup? And is such a classification even important? What do these recent events mean for the future of democratic institutions in Tunisia? 
And how are these events viewed by the country's youth who are raised on the promises of a revolution and dreams of democracy? He used the constitution. He referred to Article 80 of the constitution. This is Ricardo Fabiani, project director for North Africa at the International Crisis Group. But his critics point out that this interpretation of Article 80 is actually probably wrong. And indeed, if we look at Article 80, it says that state of emergency, such as the proclamation, the announcement that the president made, Article 80 actually calls for Parliament to be in a permanent session during the state of emergency, which is obviously not the case, given that Parliament has been suspended. The problem here is that there is no constitutional court in Tunisia, so we don't know whether this interpretation was correct or not. Constitutional lawyers, historians and academics could fill libraries with arguments for both sides, and in the future, they probably will. But is it an issue that Tunisia should be concerned with today? Ricardo says no. The discussion around the nature of his decision, whether it was a coup or not, is actually not very helpful. The reality is that there is something that is already uh, happening, that is already taking place, which is a sort of transitional period. Tunisians are obviously worried and concerned and they're following what is happening in their country and what the president will or will not do. And the point is that there was, before the 25th of July, there was in any case a very, I would say, uh, ineffective political or decision-making system in the country. The country was paralysed effectively, at least since the 2019 elections. Since the revolution in 2011, progress in Tunisia has been sluggish. Economically, the country is fairly stagnant. Corruption is rife among the ruling elites. Employment opportunities are limited, with the latest figures available from 2020 showing an unemployment rate of 16.69% and appalling terrorist atrocities over the years have dealt a severe blow to the country's tourism sector. And all these issues existed before the country was hit by the coronavirus pandemic, which pushed Tunisia's health sector to breaking point. To date, Tunisia is the country with the highest coronavirus mortality rate per capita in the MENA region and in Africa. President Syed has told Tunisians that he is the person who can correct the course and get the country back on track. But setting out such a bold objective is the easy part. Actually implementing any plans that he might have will be a mammoth task. The president takes decisions by relying on a very small uh, circle of uh, advisors and trusted people. He doesn't really have a structure behind him. He doesn't have a political party. He doesn't really have an infrastructure that can help him take decisions and think through the issues that he's dealing with. And I would say this is one of the biggest problems. The president should start interacting and engaging with the rest of society, with the army, with business class, with civil society, even with the opposition, of course, to think about what he wants to do and to consider the, the priorities of the country. Is the president ready to uh, tackle these issues? Is he the right person at the right time? The majority of Tunisians appear either supportive of the president and his actions or at least willing to hear him out and consider his ideas. When you talk with Tunisians who support the president, you never hear of a blank check for Kaysayed to do whatever he wants. 
And I think this is a very important point. Support for the president can go hand in hand with a certain concern with democracy or with public and, and civil liberties in the country. I would say in general, Tunisians are supportive, but wary of what is happening. They are cautious, they're careful, they're looking at this, and they don't want to go back and just lose completely uh, all the rights and freedoms that they have conquered through the 2011 uprising. The uprising of 2011 pushed the authoritarian Ben Ali out of office and ended over two decades of rule. It was hoped that this would bring an end to repression and abuses, unlock economic freedom and prosperity and mark the start of a new democratic era in Tunisia. Not all these things came to pass, but neither is the uprising judged to be a failure. And I think most people would point to freedom of speech, freedom of press as being the real achievements of the 2011 revolution. This is Fadil Ali Riza, a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and the founder and editor-in-chief of Meshkal.org, an independent Tunisian news outlet that started in 2019. And so we saw quite a lot of flowering of spaces for, for free press. I mean, you know, journalists working in Tunisia have quite a lot of freedom uh, in the sense of they're often, if we, if we want to compare to the rest of the region, relatively free to operate, to travel around, to, to meet with people, to ask questions. A free press is one of the cornerstones of a healthy democracy, and while the revolution in Tunisia might not have delivered everything that was hoped for, having a free press that can hold the powerful to account was an important step. Although it would seem old habits die hard. Said in the last few years, we've seen increasing attacks on journalists. We have seen particularly about three years, starting from about three years ago, we saw the jailing and the prosecuting of bloggers. So not necessarily, you know, card-carrying journalists, but people who may be getting leaked information from whistleblowers within ministries, within local government offices, particularly about issues of corruption, who have faced prosecution for those. And while the state has used its power to silence critics, journalists on the ground have had to contend with increasing levels of violence from the security services. Since the 25th, there's been a bit of a spike in those assaults on journalists. Recently, our journalist who reports and contributes for Mishkel, as, long, as well as several other journalists, were assaulted by police on September 1st at a protest of a demonstration. It was a peaceful demonstration and police ended up uh, assaulting the demonstrators, dispersing them quite violently and including some, some journalists, which was quite worrying. Concerns about what type of ruler President Sayed would be were raised dramatically when just one day after he announced that he was suspending parliament, the offices of Al Jazeera were stormed by the police. To date, no reasoning for the raid has been given. So the Al Jazeera staff had actually told us that about 25 to 30 security officials stormed their offices at about 10 in the morning on July 26th. There was one very widely shared rumor, which was that the Al Jazeera Arabic was going to do a live broadcast of the prime minister rejecting the president's decisions. However, the Al Jazeera bureau chief himself had denied this to us, to our website, Mishkel. And uh, the prime minister we've seen has subsequently come out and says he supports the president's moves. So, you know, it's really not clear why this happened. Like much in Tunisia at the moment, the position and future of journalists remains unclear. Their offices are raided and they are violently attacked on the street one day. And the next, as did happen, the president is calling on the acting interior minister 
to ensure the safety of demonstrators. One possible reason is that while President Syed may claim authority and power, his ability to make it felt throughout state institutions could be lacking. So, you know, I, I think there are legitimate concerns whether the president will do enough, particularly when it comes to institutions like security forces. I mean, the security forces are not directly under anyone's control, really. We've seen since 2011 that no political group has been able to, to really assert complete control over security forces. There's quite a lot of competing interests for influence over the security sector, you know, how they're going to be treating journalists, but other actors who are, you know, just people who want to to exercise their free speech generally as protesters or demonstrators is going to be scrutiny. And I think it's, it's a valid scrutiny in the coming period. One group of people in Tunisia who arguably have the most to gain or lose in the coming period with a potential slide back into authoritarianism is the Tunisian youth. We definitely see, especially among younger youth, so those who were probably children or early adolescents at the time of the revolution, that there is less of a knowledge of what the system was like under Ben Ali. This is Sarah Ann Rennick, Deputy Director of the Arab Reform Initiative and the author of the paper, Has Tunisia's Democracy Failed to Convince Its Youth? The Slow Going of Democratic Socialization. There is less of an understanding and appreciation of what are the differences between the system pre-2011 and the system post-2011. And this is actually quite striking in interviews and in focus group discussions between younger cohorts of youth and older cohorts of youth is this lack of collective memory, let's say, about what the system was like and what, what it was like to live under that system in terms of repression, in terms of abuses of power, in terms of police abuse, things like this. There's less of an, a knowledge of it. At the 2019 presidential election, Kais Syed proved popular among the country's youth, many of whom appeared to have been disheartened or dissatisfied by the ruling Anahda party, which they viewed as corrupt. Many youth that voted for Aisha Saeed or who supported him, you know, one of the reasons why he had so much support to begin with was because he wasn't seen as a traditional politician. He was not seen as part of the traditional political elite and was seen as someone who could do things differently and who would operate differently. And that was seen as something that would be positive, given a lot of frustration with the political situation in the country, the economic situation in the country, for youth that supported him, and there were many, the fact that what he has done since July 25th is not necessarily seen as a negative. I think for many, it's seen as something positive because it's, you know, addressing what we're sort of seen as some of the root causes of the problem to begin with, which was things like corruption and the fact that traditional elites were operating in the political system for their own personal gain instead of for the good of the country. This is- Does this mean that youth in Tunisia are yearning for a strongman leadership to take control and give commands? Probably not. According to Sarah's research, youth in Tunisia are much more fluid in their political thinking. One thing that comes across over and over again is this idea of being non-ideological or post-ideological. So I think for them, there's a real hesitation and a real resistance to saying, you know, this is the kind of political party we want. This is the kind of political platform we want, whether it's Islamist or not. There's this idea that political ideologies 
are divisive and don't serve the purpose of the country and the advancement of the country. They serve to create camps within the political elite and create friction and stagnation in terms of the political development of the country. Despite this post-ideological thinking and the failure of the recent democratic system to fully deliver on the promises of the revolution, democracy in Tunisia remains the preferred choice, even if there are some youths in the country who have had little first-hand experience. I think for, I think generally speaking, the extent to which democracy is understood is sort of in the abstract can be very different. And we do see in the research we've conducted that for many youth, especially youth in more marginalized regions who have had, you know, less, either less education, less good quality education, they have less infrastructure for their education. The abstract notion of democracy, they will say themselves that they don't understand it, that they, they have trouble describing it. While some might not be able to quote chapter and verse on political theory, they are clear on the societal notions and concepts which are expected to come with a democracy and which they are now expecting in Tunisia. But I think what it, one thing that is definitely universal, and this has very much come out of the, the revolution, the discourse of the last 10 years, is that there are certain aspects that are associated with democracy. And this is definitely something that is yearned for. This would be something like social justice and some sort of system of fair redistribution of, of resources, of wealth, and of services and access to services. And I think that's very much associated with what is considered a fulfilling democratic model. And there are definitely notions of equality and fairness that have come about certainly since 2011 and that are very much part of the demands that are being made by youth all over the country. And so I think in that sense, if we see that democracy for them is understood as associated with those concepts, then we can definitely say that it is something that they are striving for. While an appetite for democracy persists, the country has had a turbulent past with authoritarianism. But according to Sarah, Tunisia's educational system is at present failing to pass on the lessons of the past, which could help in avoiding a repetition of events. I think it's, it's, it is quite surprising that there hasn't been more emphasis, I would say, on making important changes to the way the concept of citizenship or an understanding of the country's past is being taught. And I think that's probably, that is certainly a disservice to democratic consolidation, because this could be a huge source of pride, of course, for Tunisians to see the 2011 as this really important moment, not just in the history of their country, but in the history of the Middle East, North Africa region. The idea of a single individual in a democracy seizing power is a difficult one to stomach and sooner or later we will have a clear picture of the type of leader that President Qais Sayed will be. The revolution in Tunisia started in 2011. It fostered dreams of democracy, accountability, fairness and equality. Those dreams could still become a reality but one thing we can be sure of, the president's actions and the events that followed have changed Tunisia irrevocably. Final words to Ricardo Fabiani. The reality is that the president, with his announcement, has really grabbed all the power that there was effectively available. And he has suspended parliament. He has no intention, apparently, to re reinstate 
parliament and that he has effectively initiated a transitional period. Uh, and it's very hard to imagine that there will be uh, any reversal in this transitional phase. I didn't want any of the Orientalist cliches that reduce Muslim women to a piece of clothing. This is anthropologist Laila Abulogod, professor of social science at Columbia University. Behind the veil, beyond the veil, under the veil, through the veil, <laughs> even politics of the veil, another book that got written much later. But I also didn't want to reduce the book to women since it was actually about much more. This year, Laila's first book, Veiled Sentiments, Honour and Poetry in a Bedouin Society celebrates its 35th anniversary and it is as powerful and as relevant as the day it was initially released in 1986. Veiled Sentiments explores the ways members of an Egyptian Bedouin group show hidden emotions and gives a deep insight into the ways gender operates for them. Lila made a crucial realisation while living among the Aulad Ali Bedouins. And I'd learned slowly uh, while living with them in the late 70s that they used an exquisite form of oral poetry to express feelings about love and loss that they wouldn't reveal in their ordinary social interactions. And so this poetry was puzzling to me because the same people who recited and loved these poems were also very committed to shared ideals of pride and autonomy, honour and modesty, being tough. Known as the Renawa, or Little Song in Arabic, this type of poetry is a literary tradition. It has become embedded in the society, practices and values of the Aulad Ali Bedouins. So I preferred to talk about them as sentiments, so not raw or true or inner emotions, but ones that were culturally shaped. Because they are enmeshed in the local culture, Renawas and their usage unveil a lot about what life is like for the Aulad Ali. I came to understand from the context in which women and some men shared these poems with me and with each other, that what they were also doing was giving those around them glimpses of just how hard it was for them to uphold these social ideals of autonomy and pride and honor. And suddenly it all came together. It was the sentiments of vulnerability that were veiled through poetry. And this poetry, like veiling for women, made people respect them. And bingo, there it was, the title, Veiled Sentiments. The Renawa can be despairing or express happy, moving sentiments of love. But probably my favourite Renawa, the one I've actually shared at weddings I've been to, is from a folktale or a romance story that people told. And this is what, in the story, the young woman is said to have told her lover as he was setting off on a long journey to get dates from the oasis. Which means something like, don't fear for my love for you. It's tucked away between my eye and eyelid. How close, how hidden, how precious is really unforgettable. While a study of poetry in a relatively small Bedouin community might not initially appear to have broader application, Many consider Veiled Sentiments to be a pioneering publication. She did something that really started in the 70s and the 80s. You know, there were women before her, but she was really one of the first of this new wave of women scholars to do a really excellent ethnographic study 
uh, kind of traditional anthropological study, but where she went and lived in a community, in a Bedouin community, and really focused on the lives of the women there. This is Marcia Inhorn, Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at Yale University. There's a great poetic oral tradition in the Arab world, and a lot of male scholars have been studying that. There are whole books written about the power of men's oral poetry, the sort of competition, the oral competition in, in poetic forms in different parts of the region. Well, Lila captured a very, call it private, intimate, emotional kind of poetry that women were the authors of. And it was really the first time anybody had studied that. That doesn't mean men were irrelevant to the women's poetry, however. It wasn't being done in front of men. It was women sharing their thoughts with each other. But it was actually about men. And, you know, that was another interesting aspect of the book. A lot of the women had feelings about their husbands or about, you know, brothers, fathers that they were sharing through these short poems that they were creating. And so you learned a lot about women's relationships with men in the community through Lila's work. Despite this academic depth, the learnings from the book aren't just for seasoned scholars. It's also a wonderful text to teach. This is Maya Mikdershi, assistant professor at Rutgers University's Department of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies and lecturer in Middle East Studies. So I have to say that's also part of the power of male sentiments is that it's taught, right? Students react to it, I think, in strong, powerful ways. For Maya, veiled sentiments should be taken in context with Lila's career as a whole. I think if you take a line through Lila's work, starting with veiled sentiments, right, up to her latest work, the line that you can trace is the idea that she said, you know, we are people with histories, we are people with complexities, and we have frameworks, you know, people in the Middle East have frameworks for understanding their own lives. And if we listen to them, we can actually generate new ways of approaching questions that really occupy us, war, occupation, agency, love, gender, resistance, economy, nationalism, the state. Maya raised one of Lila's subsequent writings, Do Muslim Women Really Need Saving? It was about the invasion of Afghanistan, and it was really about reframing the question of war, women's rights, agency, and the framework of rights. So, you know, she has a very sort of powerful line in there that I think about often, about, you know, why isn't, for example, Palestine a woman's right? You know, is it a woman's right to be free of occupation? Is it a woman's right to be free of invasion? Despite the scale of Lila's textual contributions, the university doors are not the end of her impact. She's also like just a very powerful model of how to be Arab woman, anthropologist, scholar, political person, feminist, inside the institution and outside of it. 35 years on from Laila Abu Lohad's debut book, it remains an example that will inspire thinkers for generations. Laila again. I don't know if these poems are part of the everyday cultural imaginations and conversations of the younger generation now, and I'm afraid that they aren't, although I know they... Uh, middle generation still understands them, but I don't know if they use them in the same way. And then maybe some of my book's readers will be from the Aulad Ali community, and it'll give something back to them of the history of this amazing art form and cultural tradition that was really part of everyday life for their parents and grandparents.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was produced by myself and Nick McAlpin, with additional help from Rosie McCabe and Naja Satat. Our theme music was by Omar Al-Phil. The New Arab will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.